Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Inclusive Class Podcast. Through interviews and discussions, it's our goal to explore the promise and practice of inclusive education. I'm Nicole Erdix, and I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm a parent, inclusion teacher, and creator of the online resource, theinclusiveclass.com. And here with me this morning on the Inclusive Class is my co-host, Terry Morrow. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to all our listeners. I am Terry Morrow. I'm the author of 50 Ways to Support Your Child's Special Education, and I write about special needs for about.com at specialchildren.about.com. I'd like to mention anybody out there listening to us live that we're not taking phone calls, but the chat room will be open if you'd like to stop in and suggest a question or just say hi. Uh, I'll try to either work the question in or respond to you if we have time, and I'm paying attention. Um, (laughs) been distracted this week. There's been a, a bit of a um, flap in, well, more than a flap in special needs circles this week. Uh, many of you may have seen uh, talk about the Autism Speaks Call for Action, which mm-hmm. um, basically uh, suggested that autism is like three million American children suddenly going missing and that if that happened, we would call out the Army and the Navy and the National Guard and that we need an equivalent plan to battle this terrible autism that devastates families. And it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's written in the most negative and horrific terms, which certainly is the experience of some families with autism. You don't ever want to negate that. However, it sort of extrapolates that out to every child with autism, and it also sort of leaves out the child with autism. It's all about the effect on the families. And uh, this has gotten the, the, the devastating and horrible and you're not really living effect on the families. And uh, it brought a fairly immediate response. The, even the comments on the page where the call for action is are all saying, this is not my experience, this is not my life, don't talk about my child that way. Certainly mm-hmm. many, many, many parent bloggers, many, many self-advocates have blogged about it. Uh, if, if our listeners will have not been in, you know, up on this and are interested in seeing what people have been saying, I have a page on my site where I'm just collecting blog posts and responses. So if you go to specialchildren.about.com, uh, at the top of the page there's a link that says Today's News and Views, and if you click on that, mm-hmm. there's a page that says Topics in the News, Autism Speaks, and that will um, bring you to a list, a running list of blog responses. And I just wanted to mention it here on our show because I think it's so important for inclusion yeah. that we as parents, you know, it's easy to get lost in your experience and in, in the terrible thing, the terrible way this has changed what you expected parenting to be. But when we start talking about our children in such negative terms and only as uh, agents of our misery, Mm-hmm. You know, it has a real effect, I think, on inclusion and where they're going to find a spot in the community. You read that statement right. from Autism Speaks, you're not going to want to include a child in the classroom. You're not going to want to include that child in your community group. You're going to want to pat that parent on the back and give them a hug and go home and say, thank God it's not my kid. And mm-hmm. while that is certainly the experience of some, for an organization that claims to speak for autism families, to couch the discussion in those terms, as they have consistently, but yeah. people keep hoping they're going to get it. Um, <laughs> you know, it has it has the real potential since they have such a high profile and so much you know power in the discussion at this point 
to affect the way people see our kids, even if we know that that is not our experience with our child. So I encourage everybody right. to, to read up on what's going on. If you don't like it, you know, make a comment on the call for action. Contact your legislators. There's some bloggers who have suggested ways that we could combat that. And just, um, you know, take every opportunity you can to talk about your personal experience, especially if it's been more positive than that, and, and think about the ways that you describe your child's disability, whatever it may be and its effect mm-hmm. on you, and, and think about what other people are going to be hearing when you do that and how yeah, they're gonna, that's yeah. going to influence how your child gets included. Um, it's really well, I've seen it through the, the sites this week, and I just um, yeah. hadn't had a chance to dig into it any you know much deeper, but thank you for summing that up because it's definitely been yeah. a hot topic, like you said, and it certainly it's affects certainly the way is. people in view uh, inclusion, too. Right. Yeah, I think it has the potential to to put a real damper on inclusion if that becomes the national dialogue. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and certainly make things difficult for adults with autism too. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think too, uh, relating to sh- today's show, which is about including uh, students with special needs at the high school level, it just mm-hmm. makes it more challenging. Be- to include students in areas where it sort of does become more challenging for inclusion right. because typically we think of inclusion happening successfully and doing quite well at the early uh, stages of education. But as kids mm-hmm. get older and the system gets a little bit more structured, which high school certainly is, right. it becomes more difficult to yeah. uh, have the, that connect between students right. and their peers and their teachers, and yeah, it just and makes certainly more if you are a high around. yeah if you are a high school student struggling with all these things, and you read mm-hmm. that statement from Autism Speaks that says basically mm-hmm. it's all your fault, you know, it's because you have mm-hmm. autism, everybody around you is miserable and unhappy. That's not going to help you make it through those no. struggles, you know. No, nor um, your nor your peers it, reading that too. Nor your peers or hearing yes. about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting, so. definitely, and, and great that you have a page up that we can refer to it as well because I, you know, yeah. my, my, like I'll I said, myself, adding. I haven't a chance. Yeah. Add to it. Well, good. Thank you, Terry, for bringing that up and addressing. Now I ruined that. your transition. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's all good. I can't stop good talking about it. <laughs> It certainly is a hot topic, and you know I'm yes. sure our guest, who's had quite a lot of experience with inclusive education and uh, inclusion through the high school years in particular, can certainly, I'm sure she hasn't, um, or this isn't new to her, because definitely inclusion has been on her list of things to advocate for and talk about for many years. Mm-hmm. And we are welcoming... Dr. Lisa Deeker here with us this morning, and she is uh, particularly well-versed in inclusion at the high school level, as I mentioned earlier, and mm-hmm. this is an area where it really intrigues me because I would like to know more about it as well. <laughs> Having worked in <laughs> elementary schools all my life, it's, I would love to know more about how inclusion works at the high school level. So good morning, Lisa. It's great to good. have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. And before we get into our questions, do you mind giving the audience a brief background uh, about yourself and how you um, work with inclusive education? Yeah, let me give you just three highlights, uh, Terry and Nicole, and thank you for having me on the show today. 
um, talking about my favorite topic, um, inclusion. And so really three things that I think your listeners uh, will want to know is uh, I'm a professor at the University of Central Florida. That's in Orlando, Florida. I always like to say not real close to Disney World. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we are the second largest university in the United States with about 60,000 students, so it's a, a great place to work. But I have two jobs here that I think the listeners will uh, help you understand where I'm coming from today. I run the Ph.D. program in special ed, and uh, I'm an endowed professor through Lockheed Martin Corporation and run a center to make teacher leaders in mathematics and science. And so my passion for bringing together the world of special ed and general ed is something I, I get the privilege of doing every day. Mm-hmm. And then probably my most important job is I'm the mother of an 18-year-old who has Tourette's and a learning disability, and I'm also a sibling and a sister-in-law of people with disabilities. So it's really been something I've been researching probably since I turned eight. (laughs) And so it really has been a life journey with inclusive practices. Right. So you've had many opportunities to see uh, inclusion work and not work (laughs) over the years, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely uh, successful and not successful. Uh, now, in terms of le- talking about successful inclusion, which is our focus today, what are some of the variables that you have found in strong secondary inclusive schools? So what things exist to, that schools that are inclusive have? So a really strong inclusive school at, at all levels really doesn't look at labels on teachers or kids, but they really look at each and every student. And and I actually spent a sabbatical researching schools across the country. And in my work with over 100 schools that work, I, my research has always focused on what works, not what's broken. We could you know, mm-hmm. go on and on for, about that. And there's really two overarching themes, and then I'll get into seven strategies as we talk a little further. But the two seem really simplistic, but they become very complicated as we move up the grade levels. And the first one is really fairly simplistic, which is they just really are very solution-oriented. There's, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of whining. There's, I jokingly say there's not a trophy room to show me all the problems. But they have as many problems as any other school I've ever been in in the country. Not enough money, too many kids, not enough parent involvement, too much parent involvement, not enough community research, whatever whatever you'd like to put on the table. The difference is they do the best with what they've been given, and they respect and celebrate every kid that walks in the door. So that's one of the big overarching ideas. The second one that I really see in those schools at the high school level which is very easy to do at the elementary level, is they're consistent but flexible. Mm-hmm. Think a moment in elementary school. If I'm the third grade teacher and you have me all day long, I'm fairly consistent mm-hmm. in myself all day long. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> when, we right. move into, when we move into middle school and high school, the rules change, the curriculum changes, the homework procedure changes, even where I put my name on the paper changes. Yes. And mm-hmm. I know having, you know, both experience and being a parent um, yourself of kids with disabilities, that the lack of consistency just creates some level of chaos that many kids mm-hmm. with disabilities can't get over. 
And, mm-hmm. and that consistency permeates things such as grading, um, you know, that everybody grades in the same structure. Um, everybody collaborates with special ed teachers in the same structure. They even have the same curricular goals across the day. And that's really the tipping point that I find really moves people into more inclusive practices. So those are the two what I'd like to call overarching umbrellas that I see in all inclusive schools, but probably greater challenges to find those at the secondary level. And that's such a great point, or both of them are great points, and I'm thinking in particular the second one that you made in terms of consistency, because high schools can be so inconsistent, and the disconnect between the, the classes and the teachers, and it's, you know, it's like moving from one, basically one school that focuses on one thing to another as you go from classes within the same school, so it's really uh, a challenge at that level, and I think you're, you know, absolutely correct in saying that they are consistent but still willing to meet and greet and celebrate all of their students with various needs. So now what about um, unique issues uh, for inclusion at the secondary level? And I briefly touched on uh, inclusion at the elementary level. Of course, we've been talking a lot about that on this program uh, over the past two years. But at the secondary level, what, how does it, how does it differ from elementary school? What makes it more challenging or easier to include students with special needs? Well, in, in the work that I've done, so those are the two umbrella ideas, there are really seven things that I find K through 12 that makes a school inclusive. So, you know, if, if we believe we can solve any problem that walks in the door and we're really consistent in what we're doing, these are some of the things that you'll find as you kind of peel back the layers of the onion that are in those mm-hmm. buildings that make it work. And and I'll, I'll kind of go over, you know, all seven very quickly, and then we can kind of talk about whichever ones, you know, you think your listeners would be most interested in. But really thinking about how those are unique. So as I present them, I'll talk about how they're unique at the secondary level. So the first one is that there's really a school-wide philosophy of that all kids can be included. And Again, that's extremely easy to do at the elementary level in some ways because you have a smaller staff. You know, you might right, have 40 right. teachers versus 140. So having the mm-hmm. same philosophical belief becomes a little bit more of a struggle. The second one is that we really celebrate all kids. And, and if we just even think of our own education, you know, think about the number of stickers and praise and, and you know, student of the day and all of exactly. those things that elementary teachers do. High school teachers aren't not willing. They have 150 kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do I create a structure that celebrates the kid? And what we tend to do at high school is we tend to, and in middle school, celebrate the kid who already likes themselves. Let's give a bumper sticker yeah. to the kid who's already making straight A's. But the kid who went from mm-hmm. an F to a D, we don't acknowledge quite at the same level. And I think that becomes, um, you know, part of the, the differences at the secondary level. The third one is really, really hard. Uh, and again, remember, I'm a huge teacher fan. Our teachers, you know, we paid them the hourly rate to babysit. We would have to yes. quadruple their salary. And so at the high school level, the third one is having interdisciplinary collaboration. Well, mm-hmm. it's really hard for me so to collaborate with the PE, the music, the art, the math, the science, social language arts, and have time to sit in front of 150 kids and make mm-hmm. learning happen. And so we tend to see more of that fragmented learning than we would at the elementary class where I know what I did in math um, right. and what I'm going to do in reading, and I know how those connect, and that becomes uh, a piece of it. The fourth one is co-teaching. 
And some people always say, well, do you have to co-teach to be an inclusive school? And I said, well, I have never been in an inclusive school where there isn't some sort of formalized collaboration, whether it's I'm co-teaching with you, I'm constantly in your room providing collaborative, inclusive support. Something has to happen where general ed and special ed actually talk on a regular basis and work together. And again, easy to do when I'm the third grade teacher and you're teaching third grade. Now there are nine of you. Who do I work with when, at what time, how do we plan? So, again, Mm -hmm. structures of high schools make it hard. Um, And then the last three, active learning. Um, You know, it's a lot easier in a class of 25, not easy, but easier when you have 20 to 25 younger children moving them around the room than when you get into the adolescent body, just even getting the adolescent body, A, to move <laughs> if you have a teenager, <laughs> and B, getting them to move in a way that is socially appropriate. You know, So you get this whole list of things. But kids need to be more engaged. What we do often at the secondary level is we prepare teachers to teach content and not as much about engagement. At the elementary level, Mm -hmm. sometimes we so deeply talk about getting kids engaged, we sometimes don't get the depth of content. So it's a different problem that we face. And then the Mm -hmm. last two, um, evidence-based practice. I'll give you two that I I just believe every high school teacher in the country should be using, and that is some facet of positive behavioral supports, that Mm -hmm. we're not focused on writing kids up for being late, we're praising them for being on time, and that's consistent in every room. Um, And then the second one is cooperative learning. The the new common core standards really ask us to know what kids are thinking. It's really hard Mm -hmm. to know what kids are thinking if I stand at the board and talk. And so cooperative learning lets our kids with disabilities be socially integrated and collaborate, but then we get to hear their misconceptions. And then the last Mm -hmm. one, um, (laughs) grading and assessment. (laughs) My best example (laughs) is if you compare a kindergarten report card to a senior's report card. The senior's report, yeah, gives you A, B, C, D, honors, whatever, have no clue what they know. Mm-hmm. The kindergarten report card tells me they can cut on the line, they can color, they can count mm-hmm. to 10, they can talk nicely with their friends. And so grading and assessment in a strong, inclusive school shifts at the secondary level to look more about rubrics and standard-based evaluations versus let's lump it all into a letter grade and not know what it means. So those mm-hmm. are kind of the big ideas, and I, I would be, you know, love to hear which areas you think are really hot topics for your listeners that you'd really like for me to focus on. What do you think, Terry? I think um, in terms of... Well, you know, all of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly yeah. all big concerns. I'm listening to these and ticking them off as you're going along and thinking about yeah. how... You know, you mentioned the Common Core Standards, and I know that's a mm-hmm. hot topic now and something I do not, as a parent, fully understand or wish to, but it seemed like one of the effects of that was somewhat standardizing what kids were learning in yes. different sorts of classrooms. I know when my daughter started in um, special ed, you know, many, many years ago, when I would ask what grade level is she working on, I was told, oh, we don't think about grade level. We just want them to do their best and feel good mm-hmm. about themselves. We don't, we don't look at grade levels. And it's like, well, that's great, but what you're saying is she's never going to be able to be mainstream, you know, in an inclusion classroom because mm-hmm. she's off on some other path. You know, where she's doing addition for three years in a row because she doesn't get it up to your particular percentage point. Uh, so it mm-hmm. seemed like the Common Core was going to at least make sure that kids in, say, self-contained classrooms, kids in inclusion classrooms, kids in regular classrooms were all sort of learning generally the same stuff. Um, yeah. Because 
then later on when you try to put a kid in an inclusion classroom and they've gotten as far as 2 plus 2 and the rest of the kids are doing algebra, it becomes really difficult to include them in any meaningful way. Um, so is that something that has uh, made inclusion easier at the high school level now, uh, if that's going on all through school, or is it bringing, I'm sure it brings challenges of its own also? Well, I think it's an opportunity. I would say that we're too new into that um, mm -hmm. facet, whether you politically agree or disagree with the common core. Mm -hmm. It really yeah. goes back to something that is one of those overarching values is being consistent. And right. if we know consistently, because here's the problem, again, high schools have, so taking this from the high school mm -hmm. perspective, is right. if we've got nine elementary schools that use different curriculums, we have three mm -hmm. middle schools, and we have 20% of our population moves from 19 other states. Kids come yeah. to us with such a spattering of skills. Well, we included them, we didn't, both socially yes. and academically, that it causes mm -hmm. a, new, a new problem. And so one of the right. celebrations I have around the Common Core as it's implemented is that in those states that are doing it, I do believe that it gives us an opportunity to be sure kids with disabilities are meeting those benchmarks, and if they need remediation, mm -hmm. we should realize yeah. that didn't happen to them. Now, as much as yeah. that sounds great in theory, remember the mm -hmm. Common Core standards will catch up from K through 12 to a high school in nine years. Right, right, right. So the kid who's getting them in kindergarten right now, it will be nine years before a high school yeah. algebra teacher will yeah. see a kid who's really benefited from that. So it's always right. high schools are, are the, the problem and the solution because they have to be mm -hmm. patient and wait. So again, if yeah. the kid's been excluded kindergarten through fifth grade, we magically mm -hmm. put them in in sixth, seventh, and eighth. They still yeah. have five years that we have to question. So. So the real answer, right. common core not, because as we know, some states didn't adopt it, some states have pushed mm -hmm. back from it, is that yeah. everything we teach kids with disabilities K through 12 needs to be mm -hmm. consistent, and if they yeah. are pulled out ever, and again, I believe <laughs> all kids can be included, but again, you know, there, there are mm -hmm. parents that make that choice, that they have to be telling oh, the yeah. same thing on the same page on the same day as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, and, that, and that's really what I think the Common Core is going to offer us. One last thing about the Common Core, too, is it's asking us to make sure kids are thinking deeply. And it goes back to mm -hmm. um, my fifth strategy. You can't find out if kids are thinking deeply if they aren't actively engaged in talking. And yeah. one of my rules mm -hmm. when I visit an inclusive classroom is teacher talk should be less than 50%. Mm -hmm. yeah, and definitely. because if the teacher is doing all the talking, they're getting smarter. <laughs> yeah. But it's really the kids we want to hear from. And as you well know, our kids with disabilities yeah. don't think like everybody else. And if we uh -huh. don't hear them talk about, or again, if they can't speak using, you know, um, you know, type text software, um, sign, whatever it is, if we don't know what they're thinking, we don't know how to correct mm -hmm. their thinking. And the Common right. Core really emphasizes that need to know deeply something. And so it's going to really shift our kids needing more of a voice in the classroom. Yeah. Nice. Good. It's nice to hear some positives about the Common Core for a change. <laughs> well, <laughs> my dream, it helps my our dream, cause. <laughs> yeah, it, my dream in five years is there will be a Common Core report card. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Good. so when a kid yeah, moves from Florida to Indiana to California, 
it checks off what students can and cannot do versus yeah. they got an uh -huh. A, B, or C. And, yeah. you know, whether it's a common – I don't care what it is, but if we could move to yeah. that level, wouldn't it be great as parents when – because I certainly know my son's gotten a C, and I'm like, I'm 99% sure the teacher A didn't like him and B didn't turn his homework in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and yet maybe yeah. that's not true. Maybe he really was missing a skill, and I didn't even know it because I was, the, the report card didn't communicate clearly yeah, right. what my child could and could not do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, as controversial as it is and difficult as it is, there needs to be a standard. And I, I whatever it is, <laughs> there needs to be yeah. a consistent thing that, that everybody can understand, that I as a parent can look at, go to a website and see this is what, what third graders or sixth graders or ninth graders are supposed to be learning and, and relate that to what I see my child doing and what I see my child, you know, bringing home. Otherwise the you know the possibility for you know abuse and neglect by the school system is too great um especially for parents of kids with special needs who can't necessarily tell you <laughs> parents always have to educate themselves and figure stuff out so you know i yeah, i, and, and I think it's great if they can go ahead and one of my one of my passions is actually working in urban schools with children of poverty. And when you look mm -hmm. at children of poverty and with a disability, many times yeah. they move schools quite regularly. And mm -hmm. if I if I move from school to school and state to state because of the needs of of my of my family, then right. you've got this child who's even a greater victim when there's not something standardized. And I think that becomes even more and more important because what we know is you know Martin Haberman shares in his his work um, that you know nine out of twelve years our kids of poverty have first year teachers. And that's and exactly if, true. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. if every year our kids have a teacher that isn't given great clarity about what yeah. it is they're supposed to learn that year, we're missing that opportunity. And, and inclusive yeah. schools really look at that. They don't just look at the mm -hmm. kid with a disability. They look at the kid who's gifted. They look at the kid who's at risk. Right. They make sure each and every kid is challenged by differentiating the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And that's the real yes. difference. It doesn't become about special education. It becomes about each and every child in those schools that do it really well. Right. Yeah, the differentiation differentiating instruction seems to be the key, you know, for all kids, really, because even in a classroom with no special education students, there's a differentiation of ability. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Not like all the regular kids have exactly the same ability. So um, that's something that's so good to c communicate to educators. I don't think they get trained in it very much, and I think if you don't have, if you don't understand how that happens, it can be hard to imagine how to do inclusion. But... Um, you mentioned uh, you know, general and special education teachers working together in inclusive schools, uh, you know, the challenge of that. Also, you often have paraprofessionals in the mix. And uh, I remember how freaked out my son's one-on-one -on -one paraprofessional was when he started being included in high school. <laughs> she was used to having the, being in the, in the self-contained class, and now all of a sudden it was like real work, and it was an entirely different environment, and it was different people having to work in. So um, do you see some issues with all those different people having to now work together in a, in a regular education classroom? 
Well, I think I think it's all about mindset and structure. And you know, I can give you mm-hmm. 500 reasons why it's hard. Yes. In strong inclusive schools, <laughs> they can tell you there's 500 ways we can make this work. Mm-hmm. But here's the difference: they don't make the schedule based on what the teachers want. The schedule is driven yes. by what the kids need, and that schedule yes. changes every year because maybe this year I need a lot of support in math, but the math teacher and the special teacher did such a great job of collaborating. Next year, maybe I need less support. And in a right. strong inclusive secondary school, we're trying trying to make it so that K through 8, if they do it well in the district, I need less support mm-hmm. instead of more. And that's really right. the mistake we make is sometimes we layer it on too thick and say to the general, mm-hmm. but you need to work together too much, which, which if K through 8 went well, we should see less uh-huh. and less. But we definitely should see right. general and special ed teachers sharing space. And more importantly, mm-hmm. we should see them sharing objectives. I'll give you one very brief example that basically – um, a nine-week curriculum snapshot many schools use where they list the objective mm-hmm. for each week. What's the big idea? And then anybody that comes in the room, if it's a para, if it's a speech therapist, mm-hmm. if it's a title reading teacher, even if it's the principal, when they walk in the door, they ask them to look at that big idea and do something in their room related to that. It's a right. small step, That's a but it's a idea. super easy way to say, hey, let's all study French Revolution, French Impressionist, Reed Lehman's were all mm-hmm. on the same week so that kids have yes. some synergy in what they're doing. And that's really what general ed special ed teachers need if they're going to yeah, collaborate yes. together so that special ed teachers aren't, we call it chicken with the head cut off, running around like crazy <laughs> trying to do things that aren't connected. Yes. Yeah. It really idea. empowers everybody. Oh, no. Oh, unfortunately, yeah, that's our school up. bell that we're at the uh, – yeah, certainly hope we can have you back, Lisa, because there's a lot more we could uh, talk about this. Uh, it's a really good topic and one that more and more parents are in, and teachers are going to be having to deal with, we hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you absolutely. so much for being our guest today. And I would like to thank our listeners for tuning into our program this morning. Please join us for next week's show when we will talk with Brenda Shurman about positive behavior supports in the inclusive classroom. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where Nicole tweets under the name inclusive underscore class, and I am at Mamatude, M-A-M-A-T-U-D-E. Lisa, are you on Twitter? Um, actually, I do have Twitter, but you also can just find the best way to connect to me would be at lisadeeker.com. Okay, excellent. Um, and finally, you can download our past podcast for free on Stitcher and iTunes. Goodbye, everybody, and have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.